0: So these are hard problems to solve, but we are trying to solve what we believe are the hardest problems in carbon removal. Those are the things that I think are genuinely exciting that keep me coming back to Nori.
1: Welcome to another episode of Nets Your Life. I'm your host, Nathan Sweet. And I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. On the show today is Ross Kenyon, co-founder of Nori. Nori is the carbon removal marketplace that helps organizations, companies, and individuals meet their climate goals with high-quality carbon removal offsets. They are early advocates of carbon removal, as opposed to avoided carbon emissions, Players in the intersection of blockchain and technology and climate space and purveyor of regenerative agriculture projects. Ross is a former political philosophy PhD student who decided playing with filmmaking was more fun than graduate school. He is a screenwriter, producer, and he's also worked in the technology communications in the blockchain space. Currently, he is a co-founder of Nori, as well as their creative editor, where he leads the development of Nori's podcasts and other types of media. This is a fun and wandering episode i get to pick ross's brain about his climate podcasting journey best practices for creating engaging and entertaining episodes and how he finds his all-star list of guests for the reversing climate change podcast which you should check out we also touch on nori's work on the intersection of climate carbon removal and blockchain ross welcome to the show
0: yeah thanks nathan i appreciate it
1: i think um I think you opened up the door for a great place to start,
0: which is who is your audience? Who is my audience as uh, a person of Nori, a Nori knot or reversing climate change? Yeah, I was thinking
1: specifically for the podcast that you created, founded and host
0: um, reversing climate change. The audience. Well, we started it and I always attribute this to Paul's uh, Paul Gambles, our Nori CEO, one of my co-founders. He had a lot of vision for the importance of having a creative forward company, having content really be key. I'm amazed I was able to become a co founder because I have a sort of elliptical humanities path, career trajectory and being a tech co-founder was not really in the plans it sort of fell in my lap and i'm very grateful for it he could have had engineers or designers or someone else in my slot but somehow he had the vision to think that some of these weird creative communications projects do pay off and Nori sits at this intersection of carbon removal blockchain uh carbon markets most of these topics which if they're not totally opaque, uh, ipso facto. They're just, uh, new to many people. So having a communications project or a product, I should say, like reversing climate change was an attempt to educate our future customers, fellow travelers, and also just to bring up the visibility of carbon removal in general. Um, I think we, we came into carbon removal when it was still really small and it's so much bigger now and it's amazing, but we're just trying to make it a, A lot of what I see my job is to make carbon removal a cool place to be and an intellectually stimulating place to be. And I think those things are closer to being synonyms than not. So anyways, that's to say the audience, though, is people who are generally curious. Uh, I would say that the show does not have an extremely strong editorializing perspective Uh, I hope that people can listen and not know exactly how I feel about everything. I try to ask good questions and meet people where they are without, I don't know, politically driving it or having too many axes to grind, which I don't think is super common for climate podcasting. I think people do have really strong opinions on a lot of things and God bless them, but I have been, um, punished by hubris and, uh, thinking that I know too many things. And I once was very certain of so many things. I had all the answers. Lost faith, lost faith in that project, and I've uh, come out the other end. So, people who listen to the show, surely that must speak to them somewhat. People say that they like the intellectual diversity or breadth of the show. I don't know. It's actually really hard to get feedback on your podcast. You you only know when people like really love it or really hate it. I don't know if that's your experience too. I think that's people's experience with most
1: products. You know, we we're talking about access to grind, which made me think of a question that I was curious about, which is being a co-founder of Nori. And the host of Reversing Climate Change, do you feel a pressure to make personal
0: climate, quote, quote, positive decisions? <laughs> uh, sometimes. I had a friend uh, who hasn't ever listened to the podcast, which surely you must have experienced this too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I know you're going. Uh, I had a show that. Um, was in the works. I did all this research, and sadly, it ended up not working out. But it was with a prominent comedian that the person liked. And I was like, "Yeah, have you ever listened to that show I do?" He's like, "Well, you just you just flew here from Seattle, so I don't know that I can trust you on this one." And it's like <laughs> this excuse for never listening to the podcast ever. It's like, all right, well, fair enough. I mean, I'll do what I can after the fact. Do I feel pressured to? I try to. I mean, the things that I buy, I try to be reasonably good on, but, uh, I find it quite challenging to, to be consistent or non-hypocritical, but I also don't have any illusions about myself being free of sin or, uh, some sort of model citizen for everything. I feel like most people, you do the best you can, but life is difficult. There's only so much time to think and to sweat over, uh, things. And also some of these products are hard to even buy ethically. I don't know. I don't think you should look to me for uh, sage advice about living some pure environmental life, but I yeah. try. Yeah. I also think it's not fair to look
1: to, I mean, I kind of set you up for a trap here. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's fair to look to anyone for particularly okay. to be the, and I just started I'm trying to, Michael E. Mann, has he been on your show? No, but I've read, um, at least one of his books, the new climate war. I have not read that the new one yet. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I did full disclosure. I read 45% of it according to my, uh, kindle and i you know it uh didn't finish it but i just started up again and he talks about this thing of basically the same idea that in this case i'm also not i tried to not be super anti-oil um I'm, i like to have nuance whatever that means but he you know places the blame on this individual footprint store squarely on british petroleum and bp and this idea the fact that i can even ask you a question this is the trap right the fact that i can ask you a question um do you feel responsible to make climate positive decisions or whatever, <laughs> is in his mind a total reflection on uh, you know oil companies and putting the, the onus on individuals and not on systems and collectives. And so the purpose of the net zero life, at least so far in season three, is to figure out how do we move from this uh, individual I need to not fly i need to be vegetarian to you know that's one decision that affects one every day you're gonna have to make that decision and it gets tiring so how do you make the one decision that then impacts your lust of your life downstream or your system or your policy or your community or whatever
0: especially of something like uh calvinism but it's also just pretty tucked into the legacy of christianity too that um What's the line? I think it's from Romans one. I think, or maybe it's Romans three. It's, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've um, just just by being, you're caught between your own selfishness and a desire to be you social and to put others first. And um, we fall short of that constantly. How many times? If you just counted up how many times you acted selfishly this morning alone, it would. Uh, be a great number. Indeed, if you thought of all the alternatives, ways you could have spent your time or your money. And um, I think there's something that's beautiful metaphysically about that in a poetic sense of being like, that's true. Um, When you are a human and you inhabit this plane, you uh, fail constantly and act in ways that are not actually in the interest of everyone. And you must ask for forgiveness, essentially for existing for that reason. It's just part of who you are. So even even if you're an atheist and you hated everything that I just said, uh, I still think there's something that's poetic that transcends the religious part of that right 100 um
1: although it's interesting because there are lots of people in the i think the world today who are choosing well not to end their own life not procreate or not have children because that is the best thing they can do for the climate um and i mean honestly it probably is not necessarily that's also not uh me not condoning that, so. yeah, exactly <laughs> i don't necessarily condone that behavior i don't have kids so i think um one day i'd like to let's go um for people who don't necessarily know your work either through at nori or through reversing climate change can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today and also if along that journey you had a climate light bulb moment or was more gradual and then that led you to to host and run the reversing climate podcast and also get involved in nori
0: um i feel like the climate stuff came pretty well downstream of nori for me or it wasn't like many of the stories you'll see these days of people deciding, I don't want to work at Amazon anymore. I need to find a climate job. That wasn't my experience. I came from, well, most recently, I, I did a year of PhD work in political philosophy and decided it wasn't the right fit for me. And I alluded to this at the beginning of losing faith in this project, but I had this long running desire to find a, a foundation to build an ethics around um and i felt like if i kept digging i would find this thing and then you know god not to be too biblical upon this rock i will build my church god i, I swear i don't talk like like uh, the bible all day long but <laughs> it, it fits dang it and then uh, i wanted to find that foundation and then um i eventually got into there's a school of thought within like liberal thought called public reason. And one of the insights that was made in particular by Amartya Sen was that um, people can have legitimate values disagreements and not everyone will come to the same conclusions. And that is a feature, not a bug that plus postmodernism. And once you admit that, then you're in a position where there probably are correct solution sets, but there isn't a definitive right answer. And so it's just like, I went into a big tailspin of doubt where I was no longer felt like I was working towards some moral realist camp that was really certain. And I still liked ideas and I loved movies and always had. So I wanted to work in uh, art and in film. So I ended up moving out to LA later, working in screenwriting and producing blockchain boom happened in 2017. I knew a bunch of people from those circles from my, uh, before I went to grad school, uh, worked in libertarian stuff which ooh, can you believe he dropped that hard l in a climate podcast but it's true nori has an interesting intersection with some of those classical liberal ideas and a lot of those people were interested in crypto and so i got sucked into that world because they needed people who were communicators a lot of those tech nerds not so good at talking to people or talking about ideas but blockchain has tons of huge ideas in them and uh yeah then Paul taught me on the shoulder uh, later that year and said, I wanted to start this thing. And he was really into carbon removal, thinking this is a way to permanently solve climate change rather than just making it less bad. And I didn't have a lot of faith in the kind of activists or policy makers who cared about climate change. Uh, and that's part of my intellectual heritage is, and is likely short-sighted or biased or a failure of mine to appreciate um, that. But the ideas that Paul started sharing with me, I thought, these are pretty persuasive and I I can actually buy into this for the first time and take it seriously enough to want to work on it. And it was great because it opened up an entirely new area of intellectual inquiry that previously I hadn't thought too much about um, the environment or climate in a really serious way. So if you listen to the reversing climate change, oftentimes you are, especially those early episodes, which I hope you don't go back and listen to because I podcasting is a lot of practice to get halfway articulate and who knows how far we've made it now, but learning on the fly and trying to learn. And I think also if you're vulnerable enough to learn in public and show some genuine humility and not knowing all these answers, I think it allows the audience to go along with you and and learn as well. I think trying to be a know-it-all and not having that sense of curiosity or beginner's mind really, uh, can make for a less effective or just like less interesting podcast? Two things podcasting has taught me.
1: One is that I have an extreme desire to interrupt people. And <laughs> two, I can tame that. Um, wow. Mostly by going on mute, but because we're in person, I have to just really just like hold my hands and be like write, on, write down everything you, I wanna respond to. So time frame: this is 2017 um, blockchain boom, Bitcoin boom the intersection of libertarianism and climate is interesting in many ways and i'd love if you can kind of if you can tell me a bit about that community in particular because much of the focus of season three of the net zero life has been on the idea of policy policy as a, a mechanism to impact change greater than yourself i don't know if that i'm not a libertarian um so i don't know if that conflicts with the libertarian ideals but uh, it's a worthwhile
0: to explore the uh, how climate and libertarianism go hand in hand well, I don't know that I could speak entirely confidently in general terms, but there are plenty of intersections too. The the conservatives and libertarians um, that I know that are interested in climate change, they oftentimes want things to work in a very market-driven kind of way. So policies like uh, a carbon fee or tax, or carbon fee and dividend. Um, those appeal to certain groups like the Niskanen Center out of D.C. is a center-right think tank. And they have a lot of people that came from Cato and that whole world. They just have a general distrust that anything the government does is going to work effectively whatsoever. So I think the idea of having businesses that are dealing with carbon removal um, for many of them is also very exciting to them. I've also seen people critical of this from the left, though, of this Entrepreneurial saviorism—that uh, that conservatives and libertarians, people who are skeptical of government, so weaken our institutions by a lack of trust or engagement that the only option left is to start businesses, and this is a sad state of affairs rather than something to be celebrated. So, I think there's something to that criticism as well. It's interesting because
1: I just finished reading Digital Gold thanks to your recommendation. Oh, yeah, quite, uh, a story, huh? quite a story. Quite a story. It's crazy because it's also just—I mean, it ends it's the for people who don't know it's the history of bitcoin and it ends in 2015 which you know <laughs> is almost just the beginning who i mean i'm sure people would argue we're still in the beginning of 2022 but part of the piece of that that i uh that i wanted to respond to is that the the government the united states government gets so much credit for the internet it's everyone talks about that Not sure and carbon removal is having a very different story. Like we are in this current environment where, where it's all Silicon Valley, you know, other entrepreneurs creating the next big thing. And it seems like people have lost faith in the government in, in their ability to innovate. Although, you know, the Frontier Fund just got so much PR for uh, advocating, uh, enough for um, committing almost a billion dollars to carbon removal, whereas the government is like talking about doing like hundreds of billions. And so it's interesting. Also, you know, Nori has been in the space for quite a long time as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's all um, pretty much on point so let's talk
1: a bit about we you know we heard a little bit of your story let's talk a bit about starting the podcast um the journey so far and kind of the lessons you've had so you've been podcasting for five years i think like 250 episodes what would you say are the first principles of podcasting specifically podcasting around carbon removal or around climate
0: more generally really i think it's curiosity and the only way that i know if a show i do is any good is if i'm interested in it and really engaged there are some shows that we've done that i admittedly either failed to administer the correct amount of investment on my end for it to be an exceptional show um, or it just wasn't that interesting of a topic and i chose badly Uh, but i've had people on the show before and i've been like ah i don't know i was maybe just okay. I don't know that I did, did my best job there. And sometimes the people will write in or tell me like, Oh yeah, I love that episode. And I'm like, are you, are you flattering me? or? You, but they seem genuine. Um, but really I just try to chase topics that I find really animating to me. So some of the shows I've been doing lately have been quite craft oriented. We work with farmers a lot at Nori that are pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it in their soil. And uh, we've been wanting to do more work with them and feature them on the podcast. I'm like, well, how can I engage with this? So we, we brewed beer from one of our farmers, barley. That was fun. Uh, another farmer of ours just sent us, uh, gosh, it's like 17 or 18 pounds of honey. I'm like, all right, I got to make some, some mead. Not everything is alcohol related. Some of these examples lately have been, um, I'm taking, we're well, doing programming a show with beast and cleaver. Have you been there? No. Is that in Seattle? Yeah, it's in Ballard here and it's an extremely prominent and uh, well-regarded uh, butcher shop and um, like like very, in, in that field, very respected and they just opened up their classes for butchery. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go take a couple of those classes. I've been eating here for a long time. I'm going to invest enough to learn enough to do an interesting show about whole animal butchery as an uh, alternative to the sort of factory farming model. And I have been reading and researching, I think shows like that, I'm like, this is really genuinely fascinating. That's the only way I can tell. So I think curiosity and your own personal enjoyment are the the best guides. But beyond that, who knows? It's a little bit of a crapshoot. Some episodes that I think are, you know, among my my best are not the most listened to. Occasionally there's a nice crossover too. Our most listened to episode I think is probably also the best episode. Which episode is that? Um, we did a show with Paul Kingsnorth. Do you know him? I'll Google him quickly.
1: Uh, I have to say like being on the show, uh, with you totally makes me feel inadequate in a good way. Uh, I'm just your knowledge, your history at working climate, you know, 2017 is early for a lot of people. Um, and so it's really a privilege to be here.
0: Oh, well, nice of you to say, honestly, I feel like I know nothing whenever in being interviewed is surreal for me too. I'm like, I don't know. I meddle through a lot of this stuff and I can, I can make some interesting connections sometimes and I'm uh, convivial enough to get along with many people, but I don't know, man. I think it's
1: worthwhile to talk about carbon removal. We've talked about carbon removal on the show. I'm especially interested to talk about carbon removal in the intersection of blockchain, web three, whatever we want to call it, because The idea of of how to get a job in climate has come up a bunch on the podcast and um, in my social network as well. And the advice that I give people is there's two pieces i i I totally in part stole this from dr elizabeth johnson right but she has the the venn diagram of do what you love do what you're good at and do what helps the climate Um, for me i think about that a little bit differently whereas climate is a horizontal where it affects every single vertical industry right like you can have climate focused airplanes you can have i mean in, in a way, uh, check sure, out our episode yeah. with Zeravia, right? Um, or you could have climate-focused food and agriculture. All these things are different verticals, and climate is a horizontal. In your case, the intersection is fantastic because blockchain is a vertical. It's a technology, right? And it's a specific expertise to understand how it works. And then having a climate horizontal layer on top of that puts you in a position where someone could then hire you and add value. Uh, and I think a lot of people are trying to figure out, hey, how do I get paid fairly in climate well you know have a knowledge in climate and desire to do it and also have a skill in a vertical long uh, prelude all that to say first principles of carbon removal and blockchain
0: yeah those are surprisingly deep questions but i'll take a shot at it carbon removal there's too much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere we've emitted for a long time without uh, sucking them back out and we can choose to decarbonize and emit less But we also have a historic legacy, at least since the Industrial Revolution, although there was land changes before that that also contributed a lot to it. Um, Those emissions need to come back down and be stored somewhere in a credible way. Okay, one sec, because we're going to have a boba break, I think.
1: Maybe this is an opportunity to do a climate perspective on blockchain, if you have one and are interested in sharing.
0: Sure, although there are there are many people who are better than I and prepared to, to wade into this fight with all the weapons handy. But I think maybe it works better to apply it to Nori and how we think about it. Although if you do want to understand blockchain better, I think a book like Digital Gold is good. There's also many others, but that are really meticulous in documenting the history and intellectual origins of Bitcoin, suspicion of uh centralization with regard to money. Money gets so weird so fast. I don't know if you've ever gone down that rabbit hole. Anyways, people who are interested in Bitcoin, they do have libertarians in general skeptical of centralized power. Money is certainly one of those things where it's you know controlled by a couple people (laughs) who uh uh work at the Federal Reserve and um it's anyway, I don't even know how much I want to go into this. The point with, with Nori though and blockchain Um, is sometimes we like to say that it's part of our tech stack and you're not pointing to whether you use AWS or Azure all the time. So in some ways, blockchain is more mundane than people want it to be. Uh, Although at the same time, it's also potentially world-changing where you have money that can be uh, traded online um, without some sort of centralized authority validating these transactions. Um, which is really interesting. I don't know if you saw with the conflict with Russia, but Russia had a number of uh, assets uh, of U.S. dollars and U.S. banks that were effectively seized because that digital money in terms of dollars um, had uh, the the federal government could have control access to that, which you might think is a great use of having centralization in terms of money because you're able to sanction someone who deserved to be sanctioned. But there are also cases where it will be used in ways that you will not enjoy as well. And so are you okay with that power being used if sometimes it's for cases you like and sometimes not? Or are you more okay with it being kind of a free-for-all? That's an interesting topic that we continue to dive on. I
1: think this is a great opportunity, though, to speak a little bit about Nori and Oh yeah, if, Nori. Yeah, like if we could talk about Nori. Nori's I mean, Nori's first principles are interesting as well. Like Nori's uh, not investment thesis, but um, product thesis um, would be a great place to dive into.
0: Yeah, one of the things that Nori has been thinking about from the beginning is wanting to create uh, something akin to the commodities market where. You don't care which pork belly you're trading. It's fungible, right? One pork belly is as good as any other, at least in this theoretical, abstracted financial (laughs) sense.
1: Yeah, after you take your butcher (laughs) class, I don't know if you're going to feel the same way.
0: Right, well, those are artisanal uh, Mm. pigs Mm. and cows. uh, Surely it matters more. Those cows would not be sold uh, on the CME, basically. Got it. But... um, carbon markets in general tend to be quite boutique in orientation where you often have to source and develop projects yourself. If you need sufficient volume, oftentimes, uh, big companies will have sustainability departments and so much of their work is on the, the vetting, the choosing. They're so worried about being embarrassed about carbon being released or this project is involved in expropriating indigenous people or killing orangutans or something horrible essentially. And Nori, we've long wanted to create a t- true uh, commodity market for this where you're able to compare carbon removals across methodologies. And this is sort of our great white whale. Um, and not everyone thinks this is possible. In fact, some of the most intense fights in carbon removal are about this fungibility issue. Some people don't think that carbon removals should be treated this way. People, Some people are very attached to the boutique model where if you care about certain co-benefits that come along with carbon removal beyond just the carbon uh being removed itself how do you price that in or surely you should have access to that but we think that the main thing that's important right now is to get the parts per million in the atmosphere down and so we are okay as a company abstracting away all of those other things to focus on how do you make carbon removed exchangeable against other types of carbon removed for us we've started with regenerative agriculture um, for many reasons um, but we're ultimately agnostic and we want to include lots and lots of methodologies that are represented in here. Everything that's credible and ethical, I, I usually say. Um, and one of the ways this is done, uh, although this is going to throw a major monkey wrench, is called ton year accounting. So most offsets deal with tons. And one of the criticisms of this that I think are, is quite valid is that uh, it assumes a permanence, that this one ton is fixed forever. And we started with agriculture and for contractual reasons with farmers and also just scientific tolerance of risk. We are most comfortable saying 10 years is the most we can really say and guarantee if this is reversed, we will fix it and reissue new certificates for buyers, make them whole. Um, And other marketplaces and other policies go for a hundred years, which I mean, you have to lock in your grandchildren or great-grandchildren into this. There's lots of different risks and reasons why we have chosen not to do this. But anyways, okay, I will, I will keep us moving. No, no, you're good. I actually think it's, oh. if since you invited me to jump in, Yes, I, I think explaining the
1: nuances of 10-year versus 100-year, Like, uh, I mean, explaining how the farmer has to commit to a specific kind of practice for 10 or 100, What that timeline, how that impacts and, and why that year is important.
0: Well, yeah. Um, if you are a farmer and 10 years is something you can wrap your head around, but a hundred years, you really have no idea. Will you have to be renting that land out or leasing that out to someone at that time? Will your kids want to be farming? Uh, is there a better use of that land 50 years from now? Maybe you'd like to go from, from ag land into plant trees and become an orchardist or uh, a lumber uh, seller. Okay, go ahead.
1: Yeah, and and that's important because for the math and science of the matter is that if you're selling a removal credit for a certain number of years, that carbon is sequestered and then has to stay sequestered for that 10, 15, 20, 30 year time period, or you have to be sequestering at that rate that you've then created the token or or sold the credit for.
0: Right, something something akin to that. And um, what do you do then also, if in the same marketplace, we want to accept direct air capture, which who knows exactly how permanent it might be? It might, might, we might be comfortable saying 100. it might be a thousand, I am not sure. This is a math question and very empirical and, and modeling based. But let's just say there's a ratio, You could say a direct air capture that is mineralized in the lithosphere, deep underground in some basalt cave somewhere, that is going to, we're confident in saying 150 years. So if a, if a nori removal ton, it counts for 10 years of storage, and that's what ag uses, and then you have 150 years, should the direct air capture credit for 150 years for one ton, should that count for 15 NRTs? So are you paying for the years being stored? by the ton this becomes very controversial about the math like does this add up how exactly does this work is it is it linear is it linearly extrapolated or is there some sort of curve involved lots of good questions that and people people in good faith can disagree about the correct amount of this to do and a lot of research is being done on this but i think if you can crack that then you're able to get to the scale where the thing that we care about is years being stored and then that's how you get you know billions, trillions of tons moving. Whereas this more like pick and choose developing little projects model, I don't think that gets us to scale ever. So these are hard problems to solve, but we are trying to solve um, what we believe are the hardest problems in carbon removal. And not all of them are merely technical engineering, scientific problems. A lot of this is financial modeling, making sure this marketplace actually does what it's supposed to do and getting the right stakeholders involved so it's ethical and actually works. Those are the things that I think are genuinely exciting that keep me coming back to Nori, but is also uh, avenue or grounds for attack for some who, who don't see it the same way. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's so fun to be in person because I see that passion and that energy come through. Um, I'll add that you know, the reason that what Nori is doing is so important, um, in part, uh, for me at the highest level, is that you are facilitating a marketplace, and the whole purpose of having a marketplace that works is that it incentivizes people to do things, and then if we incentivize people to do things, then we get to scaling, right? And there's, uh, in common parlance in the IPCC world, is we're basically screwed if we don't get carbon removal up to 5, 10, 30 billion tons a year. Uh, of carbon removal because we have these hard-to-abate sectors or we're choosing to not abate certain sectors, abate being uh, reduce the amount of carbon they're emitting, like aviation, um, like long-haul travel, and all these other things. Season three of The Net Zero Life is powered by climate people, and we'll be right back to the show after a quick message from them. Season three of The Net Zero Life is powered by climate people. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good, or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. This is a great time to explore how you want your work to drive impact,
0: either uh, through your podcasting or through Nori. Uh, The example I've been using lately, did you ever play the Civilization games, Sid Meier's? I was...
1: um this is this is so fun. Um I was an Age of Empires guy, not that the two are Dude, mutually exclusive, but there too. was definitely I feel like in my friend group there was the Civ kids and there was the Age of Empire kids and I was an Age of Empire kid. You're more of a Wodalo kind of kind of guy? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the priest
0: converting. Yeah. I put that on loop uh recently. There's a YouTube I'll send it to you. It's just like 10 hours of Wodalo <laughs> yeah. like the, the, the cleric yeah, yeah, converting. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh yeah. Yeah, I like the Age of Empires a lot too um, in civilization, there are, there are various ways you can win. And one of the ways is a cultural victory. So you are producing enough culture that you are subtly converting others. Um, what a colonizer game. So oh, great. Oh yeah. One of the funny parts of that is that you'll play against historic world leaders and Gandhi is famous for always being quite a jerk. in the game. you're like, a Gandhi's going to nuke me. What? Come on. Uh, yeah. But, um, uh, I feel like that a lot of my job is to do that for carbon removal. And, and my job is not just to make Nori more popular or influential. I think that's a, um, a really short-sighted and instrumental view of what I'm trying to do, where I, I am trying to do uh, create a cultural victory for carbon removal. I want people to see carbon removal as uh, an intellectual adventure that could span a lifetime. And there's, there's plenty of room for people who see things differently to come in here. I don't think there is a strong uh, set of dogmas you need to be catechized into. I think uh, there's a lot of room for fun, productive disagreement and different approaches. So, I mean, some parts of Norio are quite opinionated and we have stuck our neck out pretty far thinking this is the way to do it. Any business has to, if you don't have a strong thesis like that, what's the point? But I think we also try to balance that with a lot of humility and learning and I want to encourage that through, well, for instance, we've been doing a lot of meme making lately and, um, we haven't been shy about, uh, there hasn't been any moments where we have been like, well, we can't make fun of that. Cause, uh, cause Nori, you know, we like soil, so we can't ever make fun of soil. I think making fun of the trade-offs, uh, uh or cultural things within carbon removal, even if it sometimes pokes fun at ourselves, ourselves, I think that's, uh, um, I think that's inviting. And I think one of the reasons podcasting is so rewarding in that sense, too, is that so much of media, written media, is inherently alienating. And I say that as someone who loves, loves, loves books. But um, something about the written word, it's like if someone texts you, the chances of a fight breaking out versus talking on the phone, it, it's an order of magnitude higher. Like the risk is so much worse than being misinterpreted. I think podcasting opens up a space for genuine humor, humility, um, uh, affinity for one another. And uh, I'm just trying to make it a a fun, cool place to be. And I think over time, that will pay dividends for everyone because I care about carbon removal in general, not just about Nori. I obviously want Nori to be successful, but uh, it's a lot bigger than that too. I think a lot of, I do attribute this to Paul's vision and leadership here. Um, This is a very abstract, almost like a little woo philosophy. Uh, I think it is good for Nori, but I think a lot of CEOs or others might be much more immediate, and be like, "Well, where's the immediate? Is this helping us sell more units right now?" The answer is, I don't know. I, I hope so, but also that really isn't the point. When you say this uh, in terms of philosophy, Nori's philosophy. Yeah, I think a tolerance for, um, like, if you're some companies you might work at or experience, the best the best content marketing you've ever seen has probably. Been really subtle or funny for its own sake. Like, um, here's an okay example. Tim and Eric did the purple mattress ads. It's just them being them, their goofy selves with the mattresses, and it was it was funny for its own sake. Even if you didn't care about mattresses, it's like okay, that's a really good commercial. Whereas most commercials we've grown up with have not been that sort of a quick pitch maybe there's like a sexy or provocative or uh, action filled or just like a joke. Um,
1: All I want to do right now is go Hulu
0: has live sports. I just like want to blurt it out. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Marketing is so powerful. Yeah. I think, I think being a little more soft spoken uh, or not trying to sell people all the time. I think that that does have benefits to any company who does it. If they're able to, Obviously, if you're trying to move units because you're going to go under, then maybe you don't have the ability to think a little bit longer term. But yeah, that's how I see it.
1: What does success look like for you and Nori? You spoke a little bit about carbon removal. Um, we, we just spoke about carbon removal um, success there. Is that success in, and I'll be a little prescriptive and then take it wherever you want, but is it the success carbon removal displaces carbon avoidance? or carbon removal scales and also carbon avoidance in scale two. what does success look like?
0: I usually pose the dichotomy between decarbonization and carbon removal rather than carbon avoidance only because the technical use of the term is for a specific variety of offsets that um, Nori as a whole does not have much faith in. It's carbon avoidance credits of, of various types. So, But if the question is more carbon removal or decarbonization. I'm, I see no reason to uh, uh, not root for both. We clearly need both of those things. Um, I like that too. Uh, we've actually put out a bunch of memes about uh, those things going together. So I, I think that as far as there are dogma, I think that's probably yeah. close to one of them. Yeah. Let's. Uh, is there anything else that
1: you want to jump in uh, and talk about in terms of either first principles that you've learned along the way from podcasting then that the, how your work moves the world closer to net zero missions or, but, you know, part of your origin story in terms of how you got here.
0: Well, I think if there's one coherent thread running through all of it as I used to be, uh, a know it all, and then had a crisis of faith kind of moment. And I think, uh, it's okay for people to feel that way and to not have all the answers. I think even as a podcaster, I think people often respond to the genuine curiosity. I think it's okay. I think people oftentimes have stronger opinions than are warranted. And that in many cases, it's okay to not feel like you have all the answers. I even sometimes feel awkward being interviewed because I feel much more confident asking the questions than delivering the, uh, the uh, exact message that I want preserved for posterity. I don't know if you feel that way too. Oh, a
1: hundred percent, a hundred percent a little bit. Yeah. And the, the question I ask myself is how much of it is learned versus how much of it is just uh, nature. Mm. Cause you have like the big DCO. I, I messed up that word. I messed up so many words on this podcast, um, but you have like the CEOs of the world um, or just people in general who are like, will walk into a dinner and be like, This is the best thing to order. And they're so confident. And you're like, you didn't ask about what I want at all. You know, like, why is that the best thing? And I think that can apply to business. It can apply to climate. It can apply to any space.
0: I think there's certainly value in that too. Uh Paul has a line. I don't I don't think this is original to him, but I love it. He says sometimes you gotta wear the purple, and sometimes you gotta be the emperor. And people people do want a strong leader. And I respect that. Uh Paul in particular. Um, like we have uh, w- w- having diversity in your team intellectually is often really important for that reason too. I always point to my colleague, another co-founder, Alessandra Guerra. She she's, uh, has an engineering background and is extremely data-driven and being like, well, what do customers say? Like, like, what about this process? Can we do research? And Paul's very visionary, or like Steve Jobs. Like no one knew they wanted an iPhone until I built one. Yeah. And having that tension of both of them on the team in, in leadership is uh, really valuable. I think i cautious against being too, maybe this is part of the humility thing too, but I think being able to, rather than having to side with one or the other, be like, wow, this, this tension in here is productive. And if we had everyone who just agreed with Paul or just agreed with Alessandra, that would not make us a stronger company. I think being comfortable with some types of disagreement like that, um, can really be a good thing. Yeah.
1: Gavin McCormick, the founder of Watt time. And I did an episode, um, it's the season premiere. It's the first episode in season three. And he said that that's academically proven that uh, diversity of
0: thought leads to better outcomes. Uh, that's I'm sure that's true to some extent. Although I've definitely been in meetings where I'm like, wow, the agreement here is so divergent that I'm not sure that this is useful. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> yeah. Just... <laughs> I,
1: I think that, you know one of the the lessons that I've peeled back from what you just shared is that is also, you know, do what works for you. Now, now we've really transitioned from going to uh, climate to personal, how to live your best life. Um, but you have to, you have to use that method that resonates with you. If you're a person who feels really strongly about your opinions, like lean into that and figure out like what part of society that fits in well. If you're a person who has more of like a, a, a humble uh, persona, then figure out like where you can fit in and, and you have to figure out what works for you and you can't force it. And, uh, you know,
0: yeah, I think my that's I think that's true. And I also, I don't think the, the nuanced approach, the nuanced approach also faces the risk of being the, uh, the actually guy. You're like, well, actually it's more (laughs) like, and, um, and never, and even when there are places of, of, where the moral bright line is is obvious of trying to find the good in something uh, where there might not be any or being too fair in cases where you really need to make a decision. So it isn't just that this way of being is universally better. Yeah. There are also cases where you're like, wow, I uh, don't know that this is actually correct.
1: Now I'm wondering if Michael Pollan <laughs> should write a book called like The Activist's Dilemma, uh, <laughs> which is like under the thesis of do you need people just like yelling at you that there's a problem as opposed to people yelling there's a problem and here's a solution because i think the activist is more of the former rather than the latter but before we go down that route i'd love to spend some time just um probing you with some personal climate questions if you'll allow me as you wish yeah if you weren't spending your time at nori and reversing climate change what would you be doing
0: man i don't think i could ever find another job as good as this this is um Mm -hmm. I think this is, you know, assuming Nori goes well, I think I'll retire from here. The things that I like about Nori go beyond merely the mission. I feel that there's a lot of trust placed in me by working here too and vision and a lot of ability to try things out and be experimental and to fail and for people to tolerate that sort of thing. That is not the case in many other places you could work, um, so it's almost the environment that surrounds the the mission is oftentimes what keeps people engaged. At least for me, if I had to choose another job, though, I don't know. There's there's plenty of people that that are doing interesting work. I just wonder how many of them have room for someone like me, where I'm. My skills are so weird. Surely there's some, but would any of them let me do it just this way that I want? It also doesn't have to be a job. I mean, if you retired, what would you do with your retirement? what would I do with my retirement? I'd probably take more bike trips, go on some more like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, wouldn't do some minds doing some like long, long bike rides for weeks or months at a time. Um, I like gardening. I like, uh, working with plants. I don't, I don't know. Probably be a stay at home dad. I yeah. just raise a flock of kids. I don't know. What would you do? Oh
1: man. Um, I also think that I would go on lots of long bike rides. I, I think I like working. I mean, I, this is the journey of being a human is figuring out what you want to do with your time you know and a job's part of it uh it sounds like you're super lucky and privileged to have a job that truly is bringing you a lot of joy and fulfillment i should say i should caveat um with the privilege that i personally am in you know i'm looking for that top of the maslow right uh so (laughs) um yeah what when i when you like the word sustainable words because two words sustainability superhero who
0: comes to mind (laughs) <laughs> sustainability superhero wow i uh, i don't know um the provocative option is clearly elon musk if i want to get angry emails i can say <laughs> elon musk um but surely <laughs> surely tesla's done a lot of good all right you might. go with your heart go with, if that's what comes go with my heart i don't know i think um I, I'm a bit split. This might be a case where the, the nuance is more annoying than helpful, but I can respect what Elon Musk has done in building Tesla and people who are you know um, electrifying our car fleet and stuff like that. But I also really like people like Wendell Berry too. I'm weird. So I was talking about commodity markets and the importance of that. And there's nothing farther from Wendell Berry than a commodity market. Um, you can do the Walt Whitman, I am large and I contain multitudes. But really... Are you just confused? Like, do you
1: <laughs> jack of all trades, master of none, kind of thing?
0: Yeah. So I I I appreciate those perspectives, but I've I've written back and forth with Wendell a little bit. I tried to get him on the podcast. I've read so many of his books, um, and I think he just caught a whiff of of the kind of stuff I work on. I was like, you know what? I don't I don't know that I am into this or I'm willing to spend the time. But even so, I'm like, I read twenty of your books. Like, come hang out. But uh, I think he I don't think he would respect what I do. Um, so, but I've learned a lot from him. I think he offers really good challenges to the modern world. I don't know if you've, have you read him before?
1: No, I'm literally, every time I listen to your show or now being here in person, I'm like, okay, read that book, read that book, which is great. I mean, that's exactly what I want.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, let's just yeah, I like books. No, no, I'm guilty. Great, right? Not the word that I would
1: use. <laughs> it's a privilege to be um, exposed to many other leaders and authors in climate. Do you want to tell, tell a little bit of what? Uh, it would help me a lot if you give
0: um, some background on what Wendell Berry does. He was, uh, oh, he is, but he still exists. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to sound like he died. He, he, <laughs> okay. He's alive. He lives in Kentucky but he was in uh, New York city. I think he was offered a professorship at Columbia or NYU or one of those schools. And it was a turning point for him of deciding whether or not he wanted to stay in the big city and be a big city writer or move back to his hometown in Kentucky and run his family farm. And he decided the latter and he's a a poet and a novelist and an essayist. And um, just misses that his books are all elegiac and they're all about the passing of the old ways of this small town, people knowing their neighbors and working together and the the rhythms of that way of life that are really no longer with us, or if they're not fast dying already dead. Um, So uh, he's been a huge influence on the regenerative agriculture scene that we intersect with quite a lot. Um, But also a market for regenerative agriculture like this is so abstracted, he's a he's a very much like a dig your fingers into the earth and be present and feel your actual work. The the world is not fungible to Wendell Berry. You know, one town is not as good as any other. One family's not as good. it's like that line. There's a joke that I I don't know if I made this up or I got it from somewhere. It's you know like when you're rich you can buy new friends or whatever or you can buy a new family. I'll give you $50 to respect your dad. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're like, there's something that is wrong about introducing, uh, finance into these relationships with the earth or with family. And, um, like marketplaces and carbon removal. Yeah. I don't think you'd like that at all. I, I wonder, I, in hindsight, the letter I wrote, we pitched him on what nori was i'm like i really should have buried that lead like why am i telling wendell berry that i'm making a a blockchain based carbon removal marketplace it's like the worst set of words possible to communicate to this guy it's my own damn fault <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my theme for 2022 is I, i'm gonna it, it was i'm the root cause of my own uh, problems but it, i might change it to it's my own damn fault i think that's such a great mantra like it's very it's very empowering once you uh, adopt it fully i'm still working on it Favorite books, podcasts, other forms of media that you go to to learn about climate, uh, yeah, that you go to learn about climate? Uh,
0: My personal favorite, I started uh, it years ago, but I passed it to my colleague Radhika Mulgovkar, who's Nori's head of supply and methodology. It's called Carbon Removal Newsroom. It's mostly weekly, and it's a panelist show. I was inspired by uh, um, the energy gang, and uh, political climate and, and shows like that where they were trying to represent different perspectives and and comment on the news on a regular basis. But carbon removal is still so early that um, it doesn't have anything like that. It has another show now called The Carbon Removal Show. I wouldn't be surprised if more were coming online and good for them. We need more good content about carbon removal. Um, but that's the show that I listen to to keep up with my sector in particular, especially because there's so much news in types of tech outside of uh, like a lot of our content tends to be heavily niched to carbon removal and part of that is just because well we run podcasts and we are never going to have shows as successful as how to save a planet but you can have shows more specialized and better serve a neglected audience because that show is super broad right reversing climate change is extremely broad too broad, some might say. It's just like whatever interests me that week, for better or for worse. Whereas Carbon Removal Newsroom tends to be so, so relentlessly serving that audience that I think it creates a lot of value and is and it's. I almost like created that show and helped Radica shape the new version of it to be the show that I want for myself to stay up with carbon removal. So Carbon Removal Newsroom is my personal favorite podcast. But a lot beyond that, I get enough climate stuff at work that I am not. Always looking for extra. I don't know if you feel that way too. Where you're like, I'd like to just read a, a novel or or some skill based book or something.
1: Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, uh, I feel like every time I say this, I identify so much as a a, a white tech bro, um, which Uh-oh. I you know probably am. If you uh, you know ran the machine learning model on all of my data, it oh, would sure. probably put that out there. Um, but Naval Ravikant talked about how like he just puts book downs. He puts books down if he doesn't like them. And that was so empowering for me. Like, I needed to hear it. I, In the same way that, like, I needed my piano teacher, which I have a piano lesson tonight, to say, like, you don't need to play that piece if you don't want to, which was her really nice way of saying, like, you're never going to be a concert pianist, which is so undoubtedly true, but it was so, it relieved me of so much personal pressure. Um, but, and so all that to say is that, yeah, I look for books that bring me energy, and if it's a climate book, then fantastic. If it's, uh, in the case of The New Climate War, I put it down because I like, got bored and now i'm feeling that
0: I, i'm ready to pick it back up dude i i'm so bad at that i've been i do not like uh fyodor dostoevsky and i've read most of his major novels <laughs> yeah. and there's some larry david line from uh curb he says something like like if I if I pick up a book, I will finish it. I'm friends with people I don't even like, and I will be friends with them till they die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we talked about this last time or something. But uh, I'm like that with books too. Or I interpret sometimes the failure to connect with someone like Dostoevsky. I'm like, all right, well it's past the um, what's it called the uh, the Libby principle, where it's like or it's like the longer a book's been out or a piece of in, it's continually enjoyed, that's a filtering and saying this deserves to be yeah read. Dostoevsky is clearly that and i keep reading them like uh, it's not it's not because it's russian literature like i I love tolstoy read all those (laughs) it's not that but there's something i just i can't i can't connect with here i I attribute it to personal failure i'm like clearly the problem is me and really i should be giving myself permission to quit because it isn't doing anything for me i'm like why do i need to finish i'm trying to read brothers karamazov like five times i always quit in the middle because i lose track and i don't care why do I why do I do this to myself? It's it's
1: really it's funny because um, on the one hand it's so empowering to say like I am the root cause of my own problems. On the other hand, it's 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 hard. Um, but uh, I can say being on the other side, I would recommend. Not that you should do what works for me, but it, uh, putting books down has really worked for me. Uh, so
0: that's saying that.
1: I'm gonna push. Uh, I, I, you you still have consumed a lot of climate focused media uh, sure. or publications, and so recommendations that people should go read for any particular le- reason it could be blockchain focused it could be the intersection of climate and blockchain it could be what we didn't get into regenerative agriculture but any great books on that or just people who are super inspiring that will help you think differently about
0: sustainability uh, one that i i really love it's been a while since i recommended him but i was talking to him the other day because i want him to come back on the podcast is david grinspoon do you know him no David Grinspoon's amazing. Uh, one of our advisors uh, turned me on to him years ago. He wrote a book called Earth in Human Hands. And it's about, um, what is it? What is his job again? I think he's a planetary scientist and a biologist. But the book asks questions about, you know, many astronomy books cover why we don't see alien life. And there are a number of theses for for why it's like it could be a longevity problem that maybe life starts, but maybe it kills itself off before too long. That's a thesis. And um, one of the ways of framing this is called a great filter event. So will humanity stick the landing and figure out how to become a you know multi-thousand year, tens of thousands of years long civilization, or will we go back to a less energy intensive uh, existence or, or die off completely And the book poses this thought experiment, like, are we in this right now? Because there are other great filter events too, like going from single cell to multicellular life. There are probably many creatures that never make that jump either. Like there are a lot of questions like that. But Grinspoon frames that all in terms of, um, of climate and whether or not we'll develop the political institutions to match our technological evolution, that we will be able to become an interplanetary civilization and have those institutions i think climate stuff oftentimes is not very inspired or it's very inward looking Some somebody has like a back to the land kind of earthiness to it. much of what i just said with the wendell berry or regenerative ag but i think there's another side of climate change which is yeah, how do you create institutions that will allow humanity to um last for thousands of years without crises that are planetary threatening yeah
1: we've got wizards and prophets right
0: oh yeah i I suppose that he is uh that's a very wizardly way to think I love that book too. Yeah, that Charles C. Mann is fantastic. That's probably a great one for people to read too. I also love how fair that book is because he isn't writing it being like, haha, wizards are great and prophets are bad. <laughs> it's so good.
1: It's, it was my favorite book of 2021. I've recommended it on the show so many times, The Wizard and Prophet by Charles C. Mann. Um, and I'm looking, I mean, selfishly, I ask these questions to my guests because I want, I want to find that next book. I want to find what is, what is my 2022 The Wizard and the
0: Prophet? Yeah, Grinspoon's pretty outstanding. Um, I'll think some more about that though. Okay, awesome.
1: Um, you, I I think, are an inspiration to many people. While well, you might not feel that way, but but you are, um, and in particular because you took your unique skill set and have applied it to climate, and now you're a co-founder of a tech company. You run a podcast. It's all all things that many people I think listening are going to be interested in what advice do you have for people who may find themselves, you know, five years, 10 years behind your career, but who are interested in climate and want to get involved at a professional level?
0: I don't know. So, So much of it feels like luck or having known the right people. Part of it was an ability and a willingness to stick my neck out and, like I, I've been around crypto stuff for a long time, but never at any professional or serious level until I got that opportunity to, to dive in really seriously in 2017. I think a willingness to be in those uncomfortable environments where you are really stretched to learn a lot are good. I also think conventional advice about uh, you might take a job that's not immediately where you want to be, but there's still a ton you can learn from it. And also being a generalist and having diverse skill sets can be spun to your advantage too. There are many people that have careers that demand a very linear sort of trajectory. Like if you're an engineer, if you have 10 engineering jobs in a row, you're probably a pretty good engineer and that's fine. But there is something interesting about having traveled, about having worked in different fields, about having some of these stories. I think we've hired people like that. Um, I feel like it's it's easier to find people that do have those linear trajectories than people who might have a more creative or elliptical way of getting somewhere. And you want to have that same productive tension in there too. In um, meetings generalists, not that to, to my own horn or whatever, but sometimes I feel like I do have a, a weirder perspective or I'll see something that people um, don't. And other people that think differently, they of course have things to add too. Um, so it isn't like, oh, I want to work in climate. I have to get a climate degree from that new Stanford school I just saw got announced this morning. You don't need that. Maybe maybe you will in the future, but I think really uh, a curiosity, a willingness to to work hard and to to learn is really, if, I, if I'm hiring someone, that matters to me way more. Um, someone who has shown, like I'm hiring for a role right now and the people that most stand out to me have been the people that clearly uh, took the time to learn what Nori does and ask really good questions about it with no guarantee of remuneration or a job or anything like, all right, you took the time to, and then you get a cover letter where that shows no engagement. You're like, why, why even bother? Mm, Okay. Um, So anyways, uh, do with that what you will. I don't know if that is helpful, but,
1: Yeah. Awesome. Ross, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks again to Ross for joining us today. You can connect with him on LinkedIn, Ross Kenyon, R-O-S-S-K-E-N-Y-O-N. And if you want to follow Nori's work, they are very active on Twitter, in a good way, at Nori, N-O-R-I. Check out the Reversing Climate Change podcast wherever you listen. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the net zero life, and if you prefer email, Nathan at the net zero life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it is also not investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Lovett. The original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from "Climb On." Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, and I hope you do, especially if you're listening to this part, and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our socials at The Net Dear Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee and this is The Net Dear Life.